Turkey's protesters spell out their demands today, Wednesday, June 5th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The protesters want concessions from the Turkish government. Meanwhile, the unrest continues, and Turks are turning to social media for information because their domestic TV isn't covering the news. CNN International was covering the clashes in Istanbul. CNN Turkey was showing a documentary about penguins. It was beyond ludicrous. And later, sectarian violence still casts a pall over life in Baghdad. In the neighborhoods where people live, there is fear, there is tension at the checkpoints, there are uh, fake checkpoints. Plus, a Latino Republican who's not getting much love from his party. They can't come back to him a year from now and say, hey, remember that guy Gomez? They need to be involved now. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Army Private Bradley Manning is on trial, but he owns up to what he did. He leaked hundreds of thousands of classified documents to the anti-secrecy group WikiLeaks. Manning's lawyers say he was naive. He just wanted Americans to know the truth about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Prosecutors say Manning was arrogant and deliberately tried to put sensitive information in the hands of America's enemies. That, in a nutshell, is what Manning's trial at Fort Meade in Maryland is all about. The trial continued today, and the world's Arun Roth was there. It sounds like while there were some fits and starts going into the trial, Arun, things are actually moving pretty quickly. Where are we at at this point in the trial? Yeah, it's pretty remarkable, Marco, because they're actually very they're ahead of schedule at this point. In fact, they're so far ahead of schedule that it canceled the last two days of this week's session. They will already have been through all the witnesses for this week by the end of the day today. So once things wrap for today, they won't start again until Monday. The reason for that has been that the defense has been agreeing with the prosecution to stipulate the testimony for a number of witnesses. What this means is that they can then submit the testimony as written testimony without cross-examination, and it speeds things up immensely. So no cross-examination? Is that beneficial or detrimental to, to Bradley Manning? Well, clearly the defense thinks it will not be detrimental because I, what this is getting to are these issues, as, as you mentioned at, at the top, the things that Bradley Manning is already admitting to. Um, what does make me wonder, though, Marco, is that clearly there's some communication going back and forth between the prosecution and the defense now and, and some levels in which they're able to find agreement. Uh, it may be too speculative to, to say, but you, you wonder what sort of what, the, what that might lead to eventually. Mm. Now, some witnesses with pretty dramatic roles in Manning's story have already testified that that the hacker who befriended him and then turned him in, the former army supervisor who he punched in the face. Tell us about some of that testimony. Yeah, and what's, what was kind of surprising to people here was that there, there was a lot of buildup for both of those, the first being Adrian Lamo, the hacker who turned Bradley Manning in, who befriended him online and then decided to turn him into the, the feds. There was a lot of anticipation for that. Uh, he was on the stand for barely half an hour, and unlike at the Article 32 hearing, the pretrial earlier, the defense didn't really try to undermine his credibility at all. It was just a series of straight questions really taking him through his chat log and, and how Bradley Manning opened up to him. It seemed like it was more with an eye towards the sentencing and, and trying to establish some, some sympathy, you know, assuming that Bradley Manning is convicted. Uh, the supervisor that you mentioned, who Bradley Manning punched in the face in May of 2010, she spoke 
pretty much entirely about her supervisory role with Manning, but they didn't go into any detail. There was no questioning about that incident, about the troubles he was having or any of that sort of stuff. Now, she may be called back later on, but for, for now, we're not really getting into any of those kind of sort of details that people were expecting. Arun, if the speculation is that the defense and prosecution are dialoguing in some way, d- does that recharacterize the whole trial? It could. I mean, it, it's total speculation at, at this point. But again, there seems to be more agreement going on than there was in the past. And the fact that these negotiations are taking place as, as things are actually happening, it does make you wonder if uh, what's going to happen with the end of this trial. Does it mean that we're heading towards a plea agreement or some sort of deal? You know, we're all asking those questions down here. So the media presence has dropped off since day one of the trial, but I gather the Manning supporter numbers are still strong. Yeah, they're, they're still around. They're out protesting, setting up early every day. And uh, it was interesting when Adrian Lamo appeared uh, in, in court yesterday, there was an audible, there were, there were hisses practically and, and from the Manning supporters that were in the media operations center. The, hate, the hatred was palpable. Mm. As far as the reporters, uh, we've talked about restrictions on, on reporters covering the trial in the past, uh, Arun. How's that affecting things today? Well, you could say there's actually been a pretty solid victory for openness in the trial this week. Uh, there's been controversy over the fact that we have not been provided with transcripts or court filings of what's going on here. Uh, so media organizations lobbied to have a private stenographer present that they would pay for here in the media center for whatever reasons that was being denied initially, but then at the last minute on Monday, they were allowed in. So now people can go online and check this out. There will be a, a private, open-source, available transcript every day of this trial available from this point onward. A victory for openness and a trial about secrecy. Kind of ironic. Arun Roth covering the Bradley Manning trial for The World and Frontline. Thank you, Arun. Thanks, Marco. Bradley Manning's troubles began in Iraq in 2010, where he had been deployed with the U.S. Army near Baghdad. Today, it's hard to figure out what the legacy of the U.S. occupation of Iraq actually is. Sectarian violence is once again spiking. Just in the month of May, more than 1,000 Iraqis were reportedly killed, most of those deaths attributed to ethnic tensions. Journalist Sahar Issa lives in Baghdad. She says Sunni Shiite violence is on the rise in the Iraqi capital. You will find explosions are targeting mosques and they are targeting uh, commercial areas. In the neighborhoods where people live, there is fear. There is tension at the checkpoints. There are uh, fake checkpoints where they ask for your name and your ID. To tell you the truth, the situation is really quite fearful on the street. So you believe this time the government of Iraq is part of the problem? I mean, it was democratically elected. Are the people of Iraq unable to voice their grievances to the government right now? Yes, uh, the situation now is that the government, and since December, has taken, uh, how do you say, the face, we call it an iron face. You don't see the features, you don't see the expression on the face uh, towards the protests that are taking place in the country. Since December, uh, a great many Sunnis in the western provinces have uh, risen in order to say that uh, there is a double standard in dealing with many situations that are sectarian in the way that it is being dealt with. And since that time, the government has taken a stance that uh, I do not hear, I do not see, I do not speak. Uh, It is uh, like a glancing over all these things, uh, and it is staying in place. It is not giving the serious attention that it needs to give. And since that time, until this very time, every Friday, because we have Friday prayers that take place in the mosques, every Friday has been a terror Friday. We just don't know 
what is going to happen. Sunni enclaves become like camps, deployment of army, deployment of special forces, deployment of all military kinds. Terror Friday, that's pretty ominous. Yes, yes, I have a son who is uh, going to take his final exams on Saturday and I am terrified, uh, shall I let him go or not? Should I drive him there myself? A female in the car is usually uh, a guarantee of some kind of courtesy to the to the car that is passing by. I just don't know. I am crossing my fingers, praying to God that uh, the final exams will pass and he will come back safely. This is one Iraqi one mother and there are many Iraqis and many mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters who have uh, the same feelings I have. And unless the government takes a more serious stance in order to find real solutions, it is you cannot find a military solution to the security situation now. They need to go deeper than that. They need to address the, uh, the injustices that are taking place in order for people to feel that this government is my government. I will not attack the government. Why? Because it is looking after my interests. That is what they need to keep their eye on and not deploying hundreds of thousands, more than a million Iraqi soldiers now. What are they doing? Violence is just rising. They are still reaching out for the hammer to knock each other on the head. Journalist Sahar Issa, thanks very much for your thoughts and uh, wish your son good luck and safety on his exams this weekend. Thank you very much. In contrast with Iraq, Colombia is stable after its own war. A long-standing conflict between the Colombian government and the FARC guerrilla movement could be soon over. The FARC is in peace talks with the Colombian government, and the rebels are also trying to promote a friendlier image. Well, the guerrillas may know their way around weapons, but they're wobbly when it comes to public relations. They recently posted a jaunty, though poorly produced, music video on YouTube. And not to be outdone, the Colombian army has come up with a slick new video of its own. It's now a PR war. John Otis has a story. It's hard for average Colombians to warm up to the FARC. The groups carried out thousands of kidnappings, bombings, and killings during nearly 50 years of fighting. The FARC also lacks a mesmerizing leader like Che Guevara. And when they do appear on camera, FARC commanders often launch into impenetrable Marxist dogma or anti-government rants. But for the past eight months, the FARC has been holding peace negotiations in Cuba with the Colombian government. One of the main goals is for FARC fighters to disarm, form a political party, and run for public offices. The FARC would need to soften its militant image to win over voters. But the makeover is already underway. And that's why we're talking about peace now. At the Havana peace talks, one of the most prominent negotiators is Tanya Niemeyer, a Dutch woman who joined the FARC a decade ago. She recently spoke to the BBC. I mean, we are a communist party, raised in arms, but we are a communist party, so then we, we could really start to, to fight for our ideas, but without rifles. In another break from tradition, the FARC announced the talks by releasing an upbeat music video. It's called Mavoy para la Havana, or I'm going to Havana. Pedirle a Fidel Castro que lo ayude con las 
It looks and sounds like one of those low-budget MTV productions from the early 80s. But Colombians were struck by what they saw. Instead of defiant guerrillas with guns, the video shows smiling rebels playing bongos and rapping about their hopes for peace. I'm going to Havana, this time to talk, they sing. The bourgeoisie who are fighting us could not defeat us. It ends with the guerrillas changing into civilian clothes and waving goodbye as they head to Cuba. It's hard to tell whether this will win the FARC any new fans. After all, rebel foot soldiers continue to fight even as their negotiators talk peace. What's more, the Colombian army is ramping up its PR campaign. The army has come out with its own music video, a reggaeton number called Sword of Honor. It's far more polished than the amateurish FARC effort. The song features Colombian reggaeton artist Javi del Bloque and was filmed on two army bases with dozens of soldiers. The video shows soldiers creeping through the jungle to liberate a group of rebel-held hostages. But the words refer to the human cost of the war. Last month, Colombia moved a step closer to ending the bloodshed. Government's lead negotiator, Humberto de la Calle, announced an agreement with the FARC on land reform, a key issue that prompted the guerrillas to take up arms in the first place. Five more points on the negotiating agenda must still be worked out. On YouTube, meanwhile, the dueling music videos have produced a stalemate, just like the war itself. Each video has received about 13,000 hits. For The World, I'm John Otis, Bogota, Colombia. Still to come on The World, some fiddles, a ditty, plenty of ire, and presto, you've got a flash mob at a London Apple store on PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Chrysler is standing by the safety of its vehicles. That's what the American automaker is saying after refusing to go along with a government request to recall some 2.7 million older model Jeeps. The request was based on evidence that the gas tank design on two Jeep models sold between 1993 and 2007 made them prone to leaks and fire in the event of a rear-end collision. A number of fire-related deaths involving Jeeps have been reported. Angela Gryling Keene is an automotive industry reporter with Bloomberg. She spoke with the world's Aaron Schachter earlier today about the Italian-Canadian auto executive who's behind this recall refusal. Angela, Sergio Marchionne is the man who heads Fiat and Chrysler. W- what is his role in refusing to recall Jeeps? Well, he's ultimately the person who's making the decisions for Chrysler and who's setting the strategy. So he 
is here in Washington occasionally, is here in the U.S. a lot. And he's the one who is ultimately responsible for this highly unusual decision to refuse to recall vehicles that the U.S. auto safety regulator is saying should be recalled. He, from what I understand, is not your typical CEO. He, he's definitely someone who knows what he wants, and he's used to getting what he wants. He uh, isn't, isn't someone who is afraid to speak up. He's uh, someone who... Um, invites controversy, isn't afraid of upsetting someone here or there, and this is definitely a hallmark of that style. Okay, now the recall request comes from the U.S. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Um, Are car companies legally required to do what they say? Well, NHTSA, the regulator, which is part of the U.S. Department of Transportation, has the authority to require a recall. If, if, if it gets to that point, they can say, absolutely, Chrysler, you must recall these vehicles. But at this point, there's still several steps before that could happen. Normally, when the regulator tells a company, we think that you should recall these vehicles, and here's why, the companies do that. They don't take it to the next step. So this, this only happens uh, once every 15 or 20 years. Okay, from a layperson's perspective, what Sergio Marchionne is doing seems like a real big gamble. He's thumbing his nose at uh, the U.S. regulatory agency for automobiles. What could the strategy be here? It's a gamble, and it's unusual. All all the analysts I talked with yesterday and former regulators said, wow, this is not what we expected to happen. So what could happen is they could recall these vehicles later. They could delay this process by a year, by two years. And the SUVs that we're talking about here date back to 1993. So those SUVs that are still out there are 20 years old. And there's still a lot of them on the road, estimated about 2.7 million as of 2011. But every year that they wait, that they delay this, there's fewer of them on the road, which would mean it would cost less if they were to carry out a recall and make some sort of structural change to these trucks. Angela, Sergio Marchionne was the head of Fiat before Fiat controlled Chrysler, and he was known for turning the company around in part by kind of strong-arming the Italian government. Is that his style? Is that what works for him? It's what works for him, but it may not work here in the U.S. The the U.S. obviously has a, a large regulatory body, and they're used to dealing with auto companies. Recalls happen pretty much every day. It's a very routine thing that cars and trucks are recalled, not usually 2.7 million of them, but it, it's something that the regulators are used to doing and used to having automakers have some discussion and some pushback. They might negotiate terms of the recall, exactly what vehicles and under what circumstances they're recalled, the timing for when they have to be fixed, but they're not used to at all just having someone come in and, like you say, bully them or try to bully them. So there's some speculation among analysts here that that strategy may backfire and the regulator might see this as a reason to to push even harder on their side and ultimately they have the upper hand. Angela Greiling Keen is an automotive industry reporter. She works for Bloomberg. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're going much further back in time than 20 years for our next story. Try 55 million years. That's shortly after the dinosaurs disappeared. Scientists say they've discovered a creature from that period of time, an ancient monkey about the size of a mouse. The discovery, reported in the science journal Nature, could shed new light on early primate evolution. Chris Beard is a paleontologist at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh. Who is this ancient tiny monkey? 
Well, we've named it Archisebus Achilles, which uh, more or less uh, translates from the Greek meaning uh, first monkey, and everybody knows who Achilles is from the Iliad. It's an amazing creature. It's something that none of us, I think, would have ever predicted we would find because it's an animal uh, that was tiny. It would have weighed uh, in life with hair and muscles and everything like that, about one ounce. Um, and it had a, a mosaic of features uh, that are found separately in its modern descendants. On the one hand, monkeys, apes, and humans, a group that we refer to as anthropoids. And on the other hand, uh, the living tarsiers, these uh, bug-eyed primates that run around the forest of Indonesia at night today. Uh, so it's a, it's a very strange creature, a, a, a real hodgepodge of evolution. So, I mean, this is really exciting, but can you tell us, like, what the missing link is in the chain of human evolution that this discovery fills in? Well, what this fossil does at one fell swoop is it does two things. First, this is by far the oldest fossil primate skeleton of any kind that we've ever found. Um, it dates back to the very dawn of when primates are found at all, and every other primate of this age that we've found so far is incredibly fragmentary, like a little jaw fragment with a few teeth in it. So we've got an excellent fossil that's very ancient, but it also resides at this critical juncture of the primate evolutionary tree, just where two major lineages, one to which we belong, the anthropoids, has diverged from another lineage that leads to the modern tarsiers. And before we found this fossil, we simply had no idea what that common ancestor of tarsiers, monkeys, and apes would look like. We now have a very good idea based on Archisebus. It, it looked like nothing alive today, but almost counterintuitively, these tarsiers, which are very strange-looking and very primitive-looking in many ways, they probably evolved from animals that looked a lot more like a monkey than we ever would have given them credit for. But what's interesting is that this fossil being found in China is hardly a coincidence. This, Why? Well, at this point in time, 55 million years ago, so far as we can tell, our ancestors, the ancestors of the lineage leading to monkeys, apes, and humans, was confined to Asia. And that, too, I think is going to be counterintuitive to most people because everybody knows that humans diverged from apes in Africa. Australopithecines, Lucy, all of these different critical fossil humans, they're all found in Africa. So that story is an African story. But if we go back almost an order of magnitude in terms of time, instead of talking 5 million years ago, we're now talking 55 million years ago. If you go back to that ancient episode, then what we find is that the common ancestors of monkeys, apes, and humans were evolving in Asia, and, and they, they couldn't get to Africa because Africa was an island continent because of continental drift. It had not yet collided with Asia. So as a result, there were no monkey-like creatures in Africa. They, they didn't get there probably until almost 20 million years later, and sparking a new phase of evolution on that continent. Chris Beard, curator of vertebrate paleontology at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh. Congratulations on the discovery. Thanks so much. This is PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a Latino Republican in Massachusetts who's not getting much love from his party. And later, a Pakistani politician rides a burger wave. So, yes, Imran Khan has woken up the burger class. <laughs> but yeah, I think we should just accept that uh, terminology with a, with a sense of humor and enjoy it. 
WBRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Turkish protesters today unveiled a list of concessions they want from the Turkish government. They include banning the use of tear gas by police and lifting restrictions on freedom of expression and assembly. The government of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is not likely to oblige. Erdogan has been very critical of the protesters and called their use of social media a scourge on society. Meanwhile, the protests continue in both Istanbul and Ankara. Zeynep Tufekci joins us regularly to talk about the intersection of politics and technology. She's a visiting scholar at Princeton University's Center for Information Technology Policy. She also happens to be Turkish. She says these protests are unique in Turkey's history. What's quite interesting about these protests is that I think they're the first and maybe even only non-institutional, uh, non-traditional protests we've seen in Turkey, especially at least since the uh, 1980 coup. We do have big protests in Turkey. These are not, you know, unheard of events. What is quite unusual is that these large protests are not organized by any political party. They're not organized by any traditional trade union. They're not organized by NGOs. We have never had this kind of massive outpouring that is just sort of bursting ground up grassroots without having institutional leadership. So that's very striking. Right. So what started out as this little protest uh, against demolishing a park at Taksim Square has now gone into this, uh, as you say, this giant non-traditional protest. Can you just define a bit more what makes this so non-traditional aside from what you've already mentioned? Well, what it makes it also non-traditional is that the demands are very diffuse. It is more of a feeling of we want to draw some lines and sort of push back against what people see as government overreach in many areas. They don't like the way things are going. They don't like the way the government is conducting its business. And crucially, they also don't find opposition parties as a proper sufficient outlet for what they're feeling. They also are disappointed greatly by Turkish media which has been doing an awful job. They have been ignoring the protests and, uh, you know, sort of at crucial times. So people have felt like they hit a wall, that they're not being heard. And then this spark came along and just, people just took to the streets. As you've tracked social media, Zainab, have you come up with any kind of answers to the question, why have the media, why have the Turkish media failed in this respect? Well, it's actually not the first time they failed. There has been a steady, persistent pattern in the last few years of a combination of outright government intimidating journalists and also media owners in Turkey tend to also be owners of businesses. So they are doing business with the government. So there's also been a lot of self-censorship that's coming from these large media corporations. There have been a series of incidents in which Turks had to turn to Twitter to learn what the heck was going on mm. in a very crucial news story. This will happen in the last protest. In the middle of the clashes, CNN International was covering the clashes in Istanbul. CNN Turkey was showing a documentary about penguins. <laughs> it was beyond ludicrous. And then they showed the documentary on dolphin training. 
And I believe NTV was doing something. There was a cooking show at some point. I mean, the biggest cities in Istanbul, there's tear gas and hundreds of thousands of people in the street. All international media is covering it. And CNN Turkey has uh, cooking shows on it. Of course, people want the social media. Well, the, the memes are aviary this week. Uh, penguins today in Turkey and uh, big yellow rubber ducks in China yesterday. Zeynep, what's it like for you? You're, you're Turkish. You're sifting yes. through the fire hose of information that's uh, yes. blasting out of Istanbul and Ankara these past few days. What's that I like? Am, it's, it's really interesting because I'm not just Turkish. I'm also scholar of social movements and social media. So I have studied Occupy. I have studied and written about, you know, Egypt and the protests in Tahrir. I have read a lot of scholarship. Mm. And I always knew that social media was important in Turkey. But if you told me that we'd have a leaderless protest in Turkey, if you told me this two weeks ago, I would have said, not really. You're kidding. We never have leaderless protests in Turkey. And this has really made my thinking on this clearer because I think there is a new kind of social media field protest. If we're seeing this in Turkey, if we see this in Occupy in the U.S., if we see this in Egypt, if we see this in the M15 movement in Spain, all of which are very different contexts, right? For me, this is a confirmation that maybe this is the 21st century style of politics or part of it. Zainab Tufekshi, a visiting scholar at Princeton University Center for Information Technology Policy, breaking down the protests in Turkey for us. Always good to speak with you, Zainab. Thanks. Thank you. Our GeoQuiz today is inspired by a different sort of protest. Apple computers and iPhones may be everywhere in the world, but we're searching for Apple's European headquarters. They're located in Ireland, in the city we want you to name. It's Ireland's second largest urban area located in southern Munster province. Apple's decision to place its European headquarters there came under scrutiny recently as U.S. lawmakers accused the company of dodging taxes in the U.S. and elsewhere. A group of Irish protesters showed their displeasure with Apple last night, but they did it in London, occupying Apple's flagship store there. We'll hear why they did that when we come back with the name of Ireland's second largest city in just a bit. The Republican Party had a tough time with Latino voters last fall. President Obama captured some 75 percent of the Hispanic vote. Latinos flocked to the Democratic Party in part because of the GOP's opposition to immigration reform. Now Republicans are trying to rebrand their party with a softer stance on immigration reform and more Latino candidates. The world's Jason Margolis has a story of the newest Republican Latino candidate. Gabriel Gomez is running to fill John Kerry's vacant Senate seat in Massachusetts. And the special election is on June 25th. It's almost as if the Republican Party went to central casting and said, we need this guy. Me llamo Gabriel Gomez y no soy un político. Now, for those of you who don't speak Spanish, my name is Gabriel Gomez. I had a calling from an early age serve my family's adopted country. I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Gabriel Gomez's campaign ad is littered with photos of the square-jawed son of Colombian immigrants in his Navy whites and military fatigues. Gomez went on to earn an MBA from Harvard and become a self-made multimillionaire. But as with every good Hollywood character, Gomez has a tragic flaw. He's a Republican in a very blue state. Gomez wants voters to know, though, he's no ordinary Republican. 
I met Gomez on the campaign trail at a bread bakery in the city of Malden, just outside of Boston. You know, I get asked all the time whether I'm a you know, conservative, a moderate, a liberal, whatever. You know, and I just tell them, first off, I'm a Navy guy. Gomez breaks with many in his party on several key issues. He supports gay marriage, wants to address climate change, and generally backs the immigration reform bill currently in the Senate. Now, obviously, it starts with securing the border. You have to secure the border. And I think it's also good that we're going to have a pathway to citizenship where, you know, we've got 12 million undocumented workers here. And it, quite frankly, it's no longer just a moral issue. It's an economic issue. That position, supporting a pathway to citizenship, is something many Latinos nationwide wanted to hear from Republicans last fall. In Massachusetts, they didn't hear that from Senator Scott Brown. And that's one reason the state's 350,000 Latino voters shunned him last November, says Matt Barreto, co-founder of the polling firm Latino Decisions. Only 14 percent of Latino voters supported Scott Brown in that Senate seat. And that was a critical factor for Elizabeth Warren winning that seat was that very, very large 86 percent support she got among Latino voters. Gomez is running against liberal Democrat Ed Markey, a 19-term congressman from Malden. Markey isn't that well-known statewide. And in a special off-year election with very low voter turnout expected, the ingredients could be ripe for an upset. But is having the right-sounding last name and even the right stance on immigration reform enough to sway Latino voters to the Republican Party in Massachusetts? Will a few, when they close the curtain and, and see, it's possible. Alejandra St. Guillen is the executive director of OISTE, a Latino civic engagement organization in Boston. Just as, you know, when a Republican woman is running, maybe you'll have a few Democratic women who say, you know, it's just so important to have a woman in that position. Affinity votes do happen. But in the next breath, St. Guillen says the Republican Party has done a lot of damage to its brand with Latinos. Those wounds are still fresh, and she expects most Massachusetts Latinos, many of whom are in unions, to stick with the Democratic Party. She adds, while immigration reform is important, for most Latinos, the economy is still issue number one. And it's very difficult to find, uh, to know what Gomez's positions are on, on fiscal policy, says it's fiscally conservative, but what does that mean? What do he cut entitlement reforms? How, you know, what are the benefits he would protect for Massachusetts? Gomez hasn't gotten much financial backing from the GOP at the national level, and not much campaign help either. Senator John McCain did come to a rally in Massachusetts, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell sent out a fundraising note for Gomez. But Matt Barreto says if the Republican Party wants to showcase Gomez down the road, win or lose this June, the party needs to do more for him now. They can't come back to him a year from now during the midterms and say, hey, remember that guy Gomez? Uh, his name ended in a Z. He was a Latino. Remember him. They need to be involved now. They need to be going there showing that they support his candidacy and that that's the person they want representing the Republican Party in the U.S. Senate. Then they can come back and use him and say, hey, we, we helped you. Now you help us. But Gomez isn't exactly ingratiating himself with the GOP either. He says if elected, he'll be a pain in the butt for Republicans in Washington. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis, Boston.
Well, you can find Apple Computer's gleaming Irish headquarters in the southwest city of Cork. So Cork is the answer to our geo-quiz today. But it was an Apple store on Regent Street in London where a curious thing happened last night. A small flash mob formed, and then some Irish musicians got their fiddles out and played tunes to stage what they called an I-Dodge protest. Mark Thomas was one of the instigators. As a comedian, he specializes in what he calls creative mayhem. First of all, explain what an I-Dodge protest is, Mark. Well, the protest was very simple, which is if a multinational like Apple is channeling its tax affairs through Ireland and you end up in a situation where one of their companies is generating £30 billion worth of profit and paying no tax anywhere, then we assumed that obviously uh, Regent Street, the store in central London, wasn't actually in Regent Street and must be in Ireland. Mm. So we decided that we would relocate the store and put up some big banners saying you're now entering Irish territory for tax purposes. We had a Cayley. We brought uh, Ireland into the store. Uh, We had lots of dancing and singing. I mean, due to international tax law, Apple is actually legally able to claim headquarters in Ireland and and work uh, without paying tax. Um, Indeed. and, And many people feel there's the crime, the fact that it is legal. So essentially you went into uh, the Apple store on Regent Street in London to protest uh, those tax policies. Yes, indeed. And we thought, well, while we're at it, we'll also um, put some websites up on their display computers, explaining that people can buy the same products in the store around the corner at the same price with a two-year warranty. And that company pays their tax where they actually do their trading. How did the people uh, who man the Apple store feel about that? Well, the staff there obviously were, um, I think probably they were told because Oxford Street is quite often uh, a place where occupations take place. There is a movement in Britain called UK Uncut where activists quite often occupy stores when they don't pay their tax dues in Britain and take their tax affairs offshore. And so what what people do is they occupy the store and try and shut it down for the day. So this isn't uh, that unusual? The form is slightly unusual, though (laughs) um, um, I don't think people normally do it with an Irish band. It uh, doesn't normally happen like that. No, I wouldn't um, think so. So I suspect the staff were probably warned that this might, this kind of thing might happen. And they were very keen to see us leave. How long did the whole gig last? Six minutes. Oh, not long. But did it attract attention? Did you get some well, passerby you know, curiosity on the sidewalk? When you say did it attract attention, I'm talking to you in Boston. So it did do some work. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, somebody heard. This is a very, very hot topic. Tax avoidance is a very, very hot topic in the UK, especially when you have many companies taking their stuff off, taking their money and their profits and their affairs offshore. And when you have austerity in the UK, so huge welfare cuts are being taken place and companies are going offshore, then people feel very angry that the corporations aren't paying their fair share. What is the feeling among Irish about Apple? Is there a desire to see Apple leave or just pay up their tab at this point and continue paying taxes? Do you know, I'd I'd be very loath as an Englishman to start speaking on behalf of Ireland. (laughs) Certainly, some people, friends who I've talked to in Ireland, are very, very upset and are perturbed by the fact that Ireland's status as a tax haven and as offering low corporation tax or no corporation tax in some cases has meant that actually there's been a decline in 
genuine manufacturing economic activity and has been part of the rack and ruin of Ireland, by the way, that actually what Ireland now is doing is trying to get the lowest amount of tax they would charge companies uh, in the hope that they would attract them, mm. which is really playing to the lowest common denominator. And Britain is not exerting the pressure it should be to change those tax havens and shut them down. Comedian Mark Thomas, who led the I Dodge flash mob at the Apple Store on Regent Street in London yesterday. Thanks a lot for speaking with us. That's a real pleasure. And if you want to see the Irish-themed I Dodge tax protest, check out the video, complete with Irish jig at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In the photos, they looked like your typical teenage group touring abroad. In matching green shirts, throwing up peace signs for the camera, but they were not typical. They were North Korean defectors. And en route to South Korea, they were detained by Laotian authorities and sent home. That's caused an uproar in the region. Greg Scarlato is the executive director of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. In this case, the South Korean government was ready to receive this group of uh, nine North Korean teenagers if they hadn't been arrested and forcibly repatriated by Laos via China, all of them might as well have been in South Korea by now. I understand they are all orphans uh, between the ages of 15 and 23, not quite teenagers, some of them anymore. They've been called the Wandering Swallows. What does that name mean? I mean, who are these kids? In the mid to late 1990s, North Korea was hit by a great famine. Children had lost their parents. Their parents had died in the famine. And... Uh, they were pretty much left on their own. This uh, issue of North Korean Portuguese wandering swallows in North Korea and China has been known since uh, pretty much since the late 1990s. Now, North Korea alleges the, the group of teenagers was kidnapped by South Korean missionaries. I, I've gotten wind of this in the past, but can you explain for us uh, in greater detail the role of Christian missionaries in smuggling refugees out of North Korea? North Korea will always claim that these refugees were lured uh, or abducted. That is certainly not the case. And Christian missionaries in particular have played a very important role in this network that have been involved in the rescue of North Korean refugees seeking protection. Unfortunately, what happens when North Korean refugees are arrested by the Chinese authorities or the Laotian authorities and forcibly repatriated to North Korea is that if the North Korean authorities realize that they came across Christian missionaries or South Koreans along the road of defection, the punishment they receive is extraordinarily harsh. It may amount to torture, beatings, uh, imprisonment, imprisonment in North Korea's political prison camps. And that is why, because these North Korean refugees face such harsh punishment, they qualify as refugees on site and they should be granted political refugee status wherever they are. Greg, if you would clarify something for me here, because these kids were en route to South Korea. They were detained in Laos, which is a huge detour. Laos is down by Vietnam. How'd they get there? Laos is one of the points of transit along the underground railroad route followed by North Koreans and those helping them. Why don't we see greater outcry? We have always struggled trying to ensure that human rights is seen as an issue on a par with the other very important issues. 
Um, I think that we will see more of an international media outcry now that the pictures, the photos of these nine teenagers have been published to uh, further persuade that we are faced with a great tragedy here. Greg Scarlato, the executive director of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. Thanks for telling us this story. Thank you very much. Finally today, we're going to learn about a rising political bloc in Pakistan. Well, maybe rising. You see, new members of Pakistan's lower house of parliament have just been sworn in after nationwide elections last month. And one of the biggest changes in the new parliament is the increased presence of the PTI, the party led by the former cricket star Imran Khan. The party won the second highest number of votes in the election, and it did it partly with the help of a social segment of Pakistani society dubbed Burgers, yeah, as in hamburgers. Fahad Desmukh explains from Karachi. It may be hard to imagine, given the pervasiveness of McDonald's these days, but hamburgers were virtually unknown in Pakistan before 1981. Believe it or not, a lot of people didn't know what cheese was. And when we were putting a slice of cheese on the patty, they were looking at, what are you putting? Is this plastic? Is this rubber? Arshad Jawad is the manager of Mr. Burger, the first fast food chain in Pakistan. It opened in Karachi and initially got mixed reactions. It wasn't a big deal for people who had visited the West, but many would-be customers didn't know what hamburgers were or how to eat them. After we made the burger, now people were asking, how do you eat this? We need plate, you need spoon, you need that. So, so we had to educate them. And how we educate them, I said, like, look, this is a wrapper. Grab the wrapper, open it gingerly, half, and use that. Back then, going out for a hamburger was a big deal, and many people can still recall their first clandestine date at a Mr. Burger. It was only a matter of time before the fad caught on, and Mr. Burger was hot for some. For many years, the average working or middle-class Pakistani was unable to afford Mr. Burger. So the word burgers came to describe young westernized urban elite who studied at expensive schools, spoke English rather than Urdu, and preferred eating burgers rather than the local cuisine. They were derided for being out of touch with mainstream Pakistani society. By some accounts, the term was first coined in a TV comedy called Burger Family, about a rich westernized family in Pakistan. Today, there are lots of fast food burger chains, local and international. But the word is still associated with the elite class in the local lingo. This rap song, called The Burgers of Karachi, was recently put out by local group Young Stunners. They describe a typical burger as someone who wears skinny jeans and Nikes, uses a smartphone and holds a US green card. One of the high school-age rappers, Talha Anjum, says a burger is someone who wants to be someone they aren't. If you listen to Burger Karachi, we're not just, you know, making fun of people. It's just a message that you should be real to yourself, real to the people around you. You should not judge someone if he's not having, you know, a branded uh, jeans or he's not wearing a branded T-shirt. Burgers may be ridiculed for trying to be something they aren't, but they have mobilized recently. The urban elite have generally shunned politics in the past, but in last month's elections, they rallied around former cricket hero Imran Khan, using their access to wealth and the media to help his PTI party. It won the second highest number of votes. Ms. Bakhalid, a member of the party's campaign team, says it's not such a bad thing to have burgers on their side. Because, uh, you know, now they're taking ownership of the country. Now people uh, in every class, as you say, 
own Karachi, own Pakistan. So I think that's that's a great achievement because you need you need people who who have exposure to the outside world, who are who are uh, what you say maybe maybe the intellectuals. The spread of the term burger has sparked a counter term, the bun kebabs. Bun kebabs are cheap homegrown versions of hamburgers made with lentils. When referring to a person, it's meant to be someone who's a bumpkin in comparison to a burger. For the world, I'm Fahad Desmuk in Karachi, Pakistan. I don't know, lentil hamburgers sound pretty good to me. I wonder if they'll stay put in those newfangled, hand-free burger holders. That's our program today. I'm Marco Werman from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. Bye-bye. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.